0: Needless to say, my first wind-up was a fruitful trip for this podcast. I feel incredibly fortunate to have met so many wonderful people behind the company's exhibiting that we all love. Wyatt Gilmore is no exception. We had booths adjacent from one another, and though I had no idea our paths would cross, I'm certainly stoked they did. We saw one another again in San Francisco this spring, and I made sure to let him know that I was interested in hosting him. Thankfully, he accepted Grant Stone is his Michigan-based footwear business, bringing great-looking, timeless style that is primarily direct-to-consumer, and giving my affinity for shoes and boots, I was excited to chat. There are certainly some additional nuggets that surprised me about Wyatt involving two wheels, so stay tuned for that. This is episode 114, so let's do it. I'm your host, Wesley Smith, and you're listening to the Standard Age Podcast. Well, Wyatt, thanks for taking the time, man. Um, It's great to have you on the show. It's been a long time coming. We obviously met at Wind Up Chicago 2022.
1: Yeah, man. Sorry, it took a year. (laughs) No, thanks for having me on. Um, Yeah, that was a good time. And uh, yeah, it was good to see you again this this year over in California.
0: Yeah, for sure. Uh, San Francisco was good. Do you find those shows to be pretty successful for you? Is it more of a marketing sort of awareness and exposure type of thing, or is it hard sales just
1: crushing? Or tell me about your experience. No, I think for us, it's more of a, it's just another channel for us to kind of explore and more of a marketing push, mainly because we don't really work with retailers. We are you know, 99% selling through our own website and shipping direct. Um, We have one retailer, Standard & Strange, in in New York and uh, Oakland. So I mean, we don't really have that experience, you know, going in and seeing customers or just being in a booth or anything like that. We don't have our own retail shop either. So um it's kind of a combination of those things, being able to see people. Um, and I mean, especially for for wind up, I mean, most of the people coming by, they're kind of like our customers. We let them know in advance we're gonna be there. And then we have, you know, a few dozen customers come over those over those couple of days and get to meet them for the first time and they get to, see, even if they have three, four pair, you know, they can see 40, 50 other leathers they've never seen before, you know, stuff that we have. So yeah, it's kind of a combination of those things. And plus just, um, you know, liking watches in general, it's just like, I mean, there's, there's definitely some crossover, um, maybe not as much as I initially thought, but it still kind of makes sense. Uh, I think so. Yeah. All in all though we've had a good experience and good feedback and, uh, you know, I don't think it really, you know, now that they have more everyday carry, uh, you know, pop-ups and stuff, I don't think it's, you know, out of place necessarily.
0: Sure. What has been kind of like a
1: prominent feedback you've gotten from the wind-up crew? From, you know, from uh, wind-up and, and, you know, the people who run it, uh, I mean, yeah, they, they love the idea, you know, trying to do something that's, I mean, not crossing over to another segment completely, but just have... Um, something a little bit different, you know, outside of just, outside of just the watches, but yeah, I mean, overall, I think it's pretty good. It's just, you know, the, the Goodyear welted market. I mean, that whole segment is pretty, I mean, it's a niche, right? It's very, very small category that, uh, even people who might, you know, like cars or watches and things, maybe they're into clothing to a certain extent. They may not know what Goodyear Welt is even just because it's still, I mean, You know, I don't live far from Chicago. We kind of live in the middle of nowhere in Southwest Michigan and Chicago is an hour and a half away. We'll go there occasionally to go check out some shops and things like that or just to get away for the weekend. And even there, I mean, you have one, two shops that sell welted footwear, you know, so it's like, and especially if you're looking for assorted brands, you know, outside of Allen Edmonds, maybe one, possibly two, you know, so it's like even in a city like Chicago, you know, which most people you know, a lot of people are not living in these, you know, New York or Chicago or, or San Francisco. I mean, it's, it's pretty tough to come across this stuff. Uh, you know, you don't, you don't see them everywhere. Similar to watches to a certain extent, extent you know, especially some of the smaller micro brands and things. So yeah, I, I think that part of it makes it interesting for people because they're like, ah, I haven't really seen this before. I haven't seen one in person. You know, what's it all about? And, and that's the watch crowd. They'll do that. You know, they'll come up to the booth and, they'll kind of be like, well, can you explain this to me or something? So that part of the, you know, the, the customer is definitely a crossover. They're very interested in these um, minor details, you know, so th- I think that part of it, it does work. Sure, sure. Um, and sorry, that was <clears throat>
0: a bit of an ambiguous question, and, and that was completely my bad. When I said wind-up crew, I was actually referring to um, the attendees, like the, the customers, let's say, I guess for those who already own your footwear and those who don't, do you get similar feedback? Do you get different feedback? And kind of like, what is that sort of overarching thing? Aside from, hey, I have four pairs and I love them.
1: Yeah, I mean, for sure. I think most of the people who are coming to the wind up and are our customers, I mean, really, they just come there to hang out. Yeah. you know, I mean, we'll ask them like, hey, do you want us to bring anything specific for you to, to try on or something? And so we'll end up bringing, half a dozen pairs or something for for people who have asked but in general they just end up hanging out for a few hours and talking and and just i mean that's kind of what it really more feels like right yeah 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 and then the people who don't know about our brand or things like that they'll be a little more inquisitive and and you know we'll start talking a little bit more like that because our customers similar to a lot of the, the people in the watch world i mean customers in the watch world They know a lot about the product, you know. They'll be like, "Oh, this is the CFZ tannery out of England." Yeah, I I I saw that suede. You know, this other brand they're using it. They use it last season or something, you know. So, they they really get into the details and and know quite a bit about the product and the components and things. So, yeah, you kind of have that feeling. So I think you know it's pretty similar.
0: I wasn't going to ask this initially, but I know obviously you use some horween that is probably the most well-renowned tannery, I guess, maybe even in the, in the world. Um, can you talk about the other type of tanneries or not even type, um, like other tanneries
1: you may use or, or allocate materials from? Yeah. I mean, so really horween, I mean, their, their thing is North American bovine hide. So a lot of the like casual boot leathers they knocked those out of the park i mean chrome excel specifically so they have a certain tannage that everyone loves and they go to otherwise it's shell cordovan which they're also you know have some of the best in the world and, and that's the only shell Cordovan we use but f- for so i mean you, you go there for those specific leathers for chrome excel which is the pull-up cow leather and then you get your shell cordovan from them but for suede we go to uh cf in england um, but you know, they also have kudu, you know, the African antelope leather. So we'll, we'll buy some of those, uh, you know, we try to stock two or three different colors and, um, for calf leather, a little more dressy. I mean, we don't make a lot of dress shoes. Uh, just have a couple of Oxfords and then, but I mean, still calf works really well, like on Chelsea boots, because you have to crimp the shape and everything else. And so calf is, is a little more friendly just to make it with, let alone then product is nice as well. So. Um, you know, for calf, we'll, we'll tend to go to NNA, um, out of France. And I mean, they've been kind of the, the go-to for a lot of good, you brands and that, you know, four to, I mean, really thousand dollar range, you know, I mean, that's kind of the thousand dollars range. So yeah, it's kind of depending what you're looking for, then they kind of go out and do it. And so, I mean, the last one that we, we, have been working with for, probably six or seven years is uh, a out of Italy. They focus on a pit tanned vegetable tan leather. So it's just because a lot of tanneries make vegetable tan leathers, but, uh, the way that they're tanning theirs, it creates a very kind of robust leather, but it's kind of transparent. So when you look at the surface of leather, or you pull it over the last and you have a final product, you have like a high and a low. And so you can kind of see the transparency through the leather. It doesn't look like it's pigmented or painted on top. So it's pretty unique that way. Um, so much so that you know, it was kind of joke around like that leather has an insane smell. Uh, it's probably the, you know, I was that's kind of personal opinion, but uh, right. anytime someone grabs a boot, I'm like, hey, smell that thing. You know, because the, the you know, the Badalassi, the tan is just unbelievable. Uh, just that smell that it has, it kind of smells like, you know, like a saddle shop or something like that. So um, yeah, it kind of depends what you're looking for um, all the way down to, well, then you need a lining and it's like, well, what kind of lining do you want? And then, so we go to one tannery in, in Milwaukee, they've been making linings for, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to quote here, but uh, decades, you know, a long time, uh, you sure. know, 3040 years have been prominent for good welt uh, makers specifically in, in, in uh, North America. And so, you know, Thiele tannery, uh, Milwaukee. I mean, that's kind of one of their specialties have been doing it for a very long time and they make other leathers as well, but they just make one really good lining. And it's like, we were using that even before starting Grant stone. Um, and it's like, when we started Grant stone, it's like, well, we, we know where to go. You know, this is, and a lot of that too is more from like a, a make standpoint. You, you ship all these leather to the factory and, and you go through, I mean, every leather has its problems occasionally. Everyone has has their issues. And uh, also on a factory level, you have your issues with the make process. And if you find something that works from a make standpoint and the end product is like, okay, we really like this, I mean, then it's, you know, it kind of seals the deal, especially when you can go years without really any issues, you
0: know. Sure. You mentioned pull-up. You're referring to Chrome XL with the
1: oils that can kind of rise to the surface, Yes. Right. And I mean, they call it a hot stuffed leather. And I mean, other tanneries make a hot stuffed leather with like that pull-up effect where it has all the oil and waxes inside the hide and you can, you know, put some pressure on the underside and you can see those oils and wax move around the leather. But I mean the, the chrome excel, I mean it's it's special for a reason. You know, some people say, yeah, it gets a little bit blown up proportion and things, but <laughs> honestly from you know, not even from a customer standpoint, but just from making the products as well that's kind of the same thing as aligning. Once you use it long enough, if you can go through, you know, years and years of using the same leather, different colors, and you don't really have a lot of issues, you know, you're always going to have loose grain on different things. And, you know, the cutability is always going to be all over the place. But if you can make the products and you never really have issues, that's also like, you know, that's not something you're going to necessarily market, right? We're not going to put that on our website. We're not going to put them in the forums or blogs like, oh, well, this leather hasn't caused any, you know, commotion in the factory for four right. years. It's a great leather, but it's kind of the reality, you know, like for them, it's just, it's, it's a, it's a really nice leather it comes in. You work with it um, when there is issues. Sometimes you can kind of work through it easier than you could with other leathers. Um, you know, we've had leathers in the past that uh, we still use occasionally. Um, it's a, it's a baby calf from Italy, but it's vegetable tanned. So it's super temperamental um it's just their tannage it's a beautiful leather but the way when you know you're lasting it if it goes through pressure or heat or it's getting pulled and things like that that's where things can happen you know it can break it can split um it can pucker because of the heat you definitely don't want to mix like heat plus water kind of similar to shell cordovan so there's certain leathers like in chrome excel you can't mess it up almost, you know, you can do all that stuff and then some, I mean, and you can kind of work through it just because it's, yeah, it works really well for making footwear, you know, it's, it's, it's good stuff.
0: So with Cordovan, not that we need to have a, um, a Horween podcast here, but like, given the fact that they do provide, I don't as far as I know, everybody with show Cordovan, why is their Cordovan better, the best? why does it seem almost like a monopoly? Like, are the, do they own the horse farms or like, are they a vertically integrated company
1: in that way? Do you know, or. Yeah, they're, they're not, they're not vertically integrated. I mean, they're buying the the shells just like anyone else does. And there's other tanneries in, in Japan and Europe that, that tan shell cordovan. Um, you know, we've used in the past sample, probably five, six different tanneries of shell cordovan. Um, and, you know, the, the best way I could put it is the biggest difference. I mean, you, you take the shell and you flip it on a, on the backside and you kind of see how dark and rich the Horween shell is. It's just, it has a, a level of um, oil and wax to it that it just kind of keeps that richness to it, where a lot of the other shells that we've used in the past, the tannage almost comes out like a calf where okay. the backside almost looks dry. And so- that creates a very, very different product, especially when you're making it. Um, it it's a little stiffer. It's not as forgiving. Um, it just doesn't have as much oil and wax in the content level is just not as high.
0: So is that because it's thinner or thicker? Like if Horween's is thicker, the others are
1: thinner. No, just more of a more of a tannage, more of a tannage difference. Um, I think they hold that part, you know, the details of the tannage and why there's a special, whether it's Chrome Excel or Shell Cordovan, they, they hold that pretty close, but right. you know, just from a, from, you know, making the product standpoint, that is, that is a big difference. You know, you, yeah. those shells, they're very rich. Right. And like I said, sometimes from the surface level, it can be hard to tell, but I mean, it's like a, uh, it's wildly different. You flip it up, you know, upside down and you look at the backside of the shell, it has that very, very dark color to it. And it, it seems kind of saturated. And uh, I mean, you know, they, they, tell that so much like, uh, I mean, they'll let people know, hey, look, we're tanning these things for six months. I mean, they're in vats and in the, in the pits. And that's how long it takes to create this product. Um, are the people doing that? And, and I'm sure to some extent, but you know, that's just kind of been our experience. Um, and, and I think some of those other applications is not to say that it's better or something. Um, but for us, you know, honestly, you have enough problems trying to make shoes as it is. And yeah. so like, Especially when you're making shell cordovan, we just shipped um, our most recent shell cordovan pre-order uh, over the last couple days, and and you know just put some online today, and very small batches. So you know usually it's you know a few dozen pairs or something, and they kind of go the same day, just because it's hard to get the the material. Sure. You know anytime you know you're you're using shell cordovan, it's such it's such a pain, especially for the factory. They're like, hey, this stuff is uh, you you don't want to have any mistakes. You don't want to right break the toes and stuff when you're lasting so if there's any question about um you know which which product or which uh shell to use because uh from a make standpoint because you want to avoid as many problems as possible i mean you know hormone's kind of hard to you know it's hard to argue with that because it's just been pretty consistent i think we've been doing uh you know pre-orders and and makeups um for probably five six years now and uh yeah, just never really have any problems. And, um, you know, that's, that's pretty much good enough for us. You know, like you, you make it and the end product is, it's amazing. You know, you can wear it however you want and you can wear it in the snow, whatever. Yeah. and, And, you know, summer, winter. Um, and yeah, it's just a very good product.
0: Well, I mean, obviously for those who don't know, it comes from the hind quarters of, of a horse as opposed to a cow. Right. So that's distinction. Number one. Number two, it doesn't crease; it kind of rolls, if you will. Um, it's also known for its durability, cordovan. Uh, so, but it's also because of where it comes from; it's such a low yield, which is why it's so expensive, right? Because if you screw it up, like you, you got to start from scratch almost with a new hide for the shoes to match and things like that. So, but because of its durability, like is it easy to damage in the lasting process? Cause you would imagine like if it's, if it's a durable material to be worn, it must be harder to damage in the creation, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it kind of depends on, you know. or is it counterintuitive? Well, it, it's more about like damaged. And when you receive a box and you open it, whether mm-hmm. it's damaged versus damaging it when you're wearing is, it's two wildly different things, you know, because some people would say, for example, um, they come up with these reasons why like, uh, you know, a full grain leather, that's really thick, why it's so much more, um, you know, why it's so much, uh, how tough it is compared to like a suede. And I always kind of look at that. And, and the reality is we've never had a customer have a performance issue with suede long-term. I mean, the suede, you're getting calf suede that's 1.4, 1.6, um, a pretty thick leather, um, it's incredibly durable. I mean, yeah. I've never seen someone work through a suede or what they say, well, it gets dirty and, and whatever. It's like, well, but it doesn't scratch and bruise and everything else. Like a lot of the full grain leathers do. And so, I mean, we have, you know, some guys in the office, they'll wear penny loafers, suede penny loafers, like, you know, for three, four years, mowing the lawn, doing yard work and stuff. Cause it turns into old an pair <laughs> and they still look great, like in four or five years and it's suede, you know, and that's like literally working in the yard or and doing things, you know, around the house and stuff. So I think there's a lot there where, but when you open the box, Shell Cordovan it marks easily, Uh, Chrome Excel marks easily. Suede is actually, it's, you know, especially from like a warehouse standpoint, when you're shipping the product, you can, it's a little less um, stressful to to deal with because you can kind of brush it a little bit to kind of move the nap around. But in general, it's actually very, very easy, you know, where maybe you pull out a full grain leather Mm -hmm um a veg tan leather or something like that if it's been laying on its side it almost burnishes it a little bit and you're like it looks great but how about the person who you know our customers open it up and they're like "Hmm, there's a spot here but the other one doesn't have that you know and so some of them even though they're very very tough leathers i mean they kind of they'll get dinged up and things in, in the box especially during transportation much easier than a suede we almost never have that problem uh but there's certain leathers that uh while they're very strong and, and will last forever, you'll, you'll get a lot of emails about that just because of transportation, you know, sure. they're like it, it's more or less a concern, like, Hey, is this okay? You know, it's like, well, use a spoon or literally just use a brush and, and, you know, a little bit of that. And sometimes it won't come out, you know, be like a little dent or something on the, on the, on the leather, which sometimes that's, that is, uh, the material, you know, the way it is naturally. Why can't shoes all be the same size? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I, I guess because people have different uh, foot foot sizes, you know?
0: No, but I'm saying like, why isn't a 10 a 10 across the board? Do you know what I mean? Like I figured you're the man to ask.
1: Yeah, so I, I think there's a lot there as to why it is the way it is today. And, I, you know, one explanation, which I think uh, people will kind of agree with the most uh, if, if they consider themselves like a, a long time uh shoe you know i don't know manufacturer or whatever in the business for 30 40 years they were making you know 40 50 years ago whether it's north america uh europe england they're making manufacturing shoes right um they kind of have their standard and back then maybe that standard was close to a certain extent um as in a 10 versus a 10 from from this country or from that shop from this manufacturer relatively similar um and at least it was closer then you fast forward to the 80s and shoes start going going east over to Japan and this and that and then eventually to Taiwan and then China in the 90s and this just gets lost in translation uh literally as far as the you know where um i mean you can still buy them today right on eBay whether it's Florsheim, you know Imperials or or whatever it is or you know a uh um you know a golf shoe um you know, like the tour golf shoe with the leather sole on it and things. Yeah. That like a foot joy classic. Yeah, exactly. Like you can still buy those and that is going to fit half a size, three quarter size bigger than your average 10 today from Nike or whatever. Um, And a lot of people just kind of say, well, it was just lost over the years from manufacturing jumping around. But I think, you know, even more on top of that, I mean, I think even more than that is just when you play with the aesthetics of the shoe, it's very, very difficult to end up with the same fit and not only just size, but just the fit in general. So, you know, every, I mean, some, some brands are trying to fit to make them comfortable and some are, you know, clearly not. And I mean, that's not, you know, what their, what their goal is. It's, it's aesthetics and a certain look because that's what, you know, that's what the customer's looking for. So yeah, I think there's a lot there, but you know, just a lot of different countries, continents, making different shoes over the years and um, you know, so when we were, you know, making our last and basically grading, um, at the size at the time I was a size 10, I don't know why we're 11, eight years later, but, uh, <laughs> you know, wearing size 10, that was basically the question like, okay, well, what are we going to grade this to? And once we're happy with the sizing, well, what are we going to call this thing? Is it a 10, 10 and a half, 11? What's it going to be? Um, and yeah, we just kind of went with the standard for today's Goodyear Welt market. And so. And it really lines up with what it was 50 years ago, whether you're going to go buy a FootJoy Classic, a, a Floresheim, you know, Imperial, a, a Red Wing, a Chippewa, um, you know, the majority of the welted footwear tends to be, you know, half a size larger. Um, and probably just because it never really left from, from when they were manufacturing, you know, all those years ago. Here's a stupid
0: question. Do you think sometimes they're a half a size big or small, depending because of the anticipated sock you'll be wearing? Because usually when you're looking at like, oh, I mean, I guess you should be able to like grade based on the last used to stretch the shoe, right? To to, to create the shoe. But like, I'm just thinking like some some of my boots are obviously like a whole size smaller number wise than like a, an Oxford that I own. And is that because I'm supposed to be wearing a boot
1: sock? You know, something thicker? You know, I I, I wouldn't... I wouldn't think so. And, and uh, at this point, I'd be kind of guessing, uh, just right. based on, you know, um, what, what my family had, had done and their information and kind of what we do now. Right. I, I think honestly, sometimes, I mean, if you look at some of the brands and who are actually developing the last and everything, it's sometimes just one guy or it's yeah. one or two guys. And I mean, they're just doing something because they think it, it makes sense. Um, if it comes down to sock and things like that, I I, I wouldn't think so. I think it's more, um, you know, the red wings and, uh, you know, what you put in that category, the very casual Goodyear welted work boots and things like that. They've always fit larger and, and yeah. really have never strayed away from that. Maybe some of the more recent cemented lower price point stuff, maybe it you know, goes away from that a little bit, but I think in general, maybe the stuff you're, you're referring to as well, they're kind of just sticking to that half a size larger. And then, you know, but to your point, there has to be a combination of those things when, when you're developing a boot and you know, this is a size 10, if it's a true work boot and let's say, you know, the ones you might be buying now, the welted stuff that's uh, uses a little better leather, a nicer welt, the last they're using though, could have been initially made for a true work boot, you know, something that was, you know, not necessarily considered lifestyle boot as a work boot. And they, you know, put a little more, uh, toe room as in the toe box area, just because you're working, you're standing around all day, you're wearing a thicker it's sock. Swelling.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Just kind of the entire process there. Last thing you want to do like in work boot is, is have something that's snug, especially in the four part, right. It'll, it'll be the worst experience ever. So yeah, I think it's probably a combination of all those things. And then to your point, yeah, dress shoe, um, you know, wearing a, you know, a dress sock, usually super thin wool, wool sock or something like that. So a little bit different, but, um, yeah, we, we've done that as well. So for example, our Oxford, it does fit about half size smaller and it's simply because the way that the shat the, 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 the last is shaped, you know, basically from the ball forward, it's, it's a wildly different, uh, product than, than, you know, the casual boots. Sure. Sure. Grant Stone, where did the name come from? so it was, so my grandpa worked at Alden for, you know, 60 something years and oh, his, wow. um, and the person that he, uh, learned from, um, his name was Grant Stone. And so he used to come over to the families, you know, the house a lot and stuff. And, uh, my dad always really, um, you know, uh, he always liked Grant Stone and, uh, he was kind of a, a family friend, but he always, they, they would always kind of joke a little bit. Like he was so prim and proper and the way that he dressed and everything else. But I mean, this is back in like the fifties and sixties, but even then he always kind of had a top hat and, and just the way he, he, dressed and, um, his personality, uh, kind of stuck with him for, you know, for a long time. And so that, that name was, you know, thought it kind of, uh, lined up well for, for a brand as well. It just kind of ha- has a good ring to it. What's your relationship with Alden now? I never really had one. Um, my dad worked at Alden as well for something like 15 to 18 years um um he took over the the midwest territory for my grandpa at one point um you know for those years but when i got into the business um my dad was already working with the family in in taiwan and china so um he basically asked me if i want to get you know into the business and kind of suggested that i should go to china and, and spend some time over there and uh see what it's about even if i don't get into the industry and um so I've always been uh, with this family making shoes over there in China.
0: Oh, that's cool. You're based in Michigan, like you said. Have you always, are you, were you born and raised there? Yeah, I was born and raised here. Yep. Okay. What did your dad do after Alden? Or did he retire?
1: Yeah, so he he went to a show in Vegas, and that's where he met the family um, You know, that, that I work with now. Um, and that was in 94. And so he started working with, he went over to Xiamen, China, where our shoes are made now in 94. Um, basically was the factory liaison at that point and was trying to uh, bring in some some welted business. The factory wanted to to change the product they were making. And um, they, they weren't really looking to grow necessarily from a volume standpoint as far as output. They were just trying to change uh, the product they are making and, and uh, raise the price point. Um, so they could keep the volume at a certain level. And so, yeah, they started making welted boots in, like, 94, 95, and uh, all the way until when I got there in 2010, uh, still making welted stuff. And that's kind of where I I picked up. Okay, so uh, forgive my
0: ignorance, and this is kind of perhaps news to me. So did your dad found Grant Stone
1: and you took it over? Well, yeah, I mean, so he, he actually created Grant Stone in, like, the early 2000s and made a line but then he he gave it up pretty quickly just because you know it wasn't based online it wasn't direct consumer a family friend who who has some shops um on the east coast was selling some of the shoes so basically they they gave it up after a little while uh you know he and the and you know the family that's making the shoes um but then once i was over there um so i moved to china in 2010 and was just developing for them for, you know, maybe six, seven years at that point when it was like, Hey, should I, should we look to do something on our own? Um, Because we were making shoes and good shoes, a good welted, you know, product, but it was always very difficult to sell the customer something that had everything uh, as far as component wise, everything top to bottom, just because they're going to have a hard time marketing it because well hey we're a big consumer brand and we can't sell something for 400 dollars made in china like we're just not going to do that um we don't care how good the quality is it's just it's just too difficult to do that you know so that was kind of when you know i was just playing around with samples and making products um and basically just made seven seven products to start with and said hey let's make a shopify website and uh you know, a family friend in, in Connecticut, uh, the shoe Mart, um, they said that they would, uh, receive the shoes and ship them for me. So, wow. Yeah. So basically we made the, I think it's 635 pair. So the time is a lot of shoes, uh, seven styles, all like leather sole, plain toe and long wing, um, bluchers and, uh, sent them over to, to Connecticut. And, uh, I was just kind of running like the customer service and the website and stuff and the, you know the shoe the factory side of things from shaman and then they were i would just send them an email went to i mean you know something like one pair every other day or something like that and so i would just shoot him an email and he's like okay sure and then he'd go ship the pair of shoes for us wow but you know it was a couple of years of that before you know kind of realized like hey maybe i could put the other things aside um at the factory level and, and we, maybe we could do the grant something full-time and so that's it took a couple of years though to get to that point you know uh, it was like 2018 that's kind of when uh moved back to the states to open up a warehouse and office um you know we already had added quite a few styles and um yeah we just saw some traction I mean it took a while to kind of get through the uh, made in China a thing and I mean of course to be fair like it's it's not all that common right for for you know there's not too many welted brands and Meerman's a good example they make um some quality product out of out of China but that's kind of it, you know, um, from, from American marketing standpoint or just, you know, that, that type of thing. So, yeah, I mean, it took a while, you know, um, of making shell cordovan products and everything else, uh, year on end, just to, to kind of break through and for people to, uh, not be so concerned with that, you know? Sure. So,
0: I mean, you could have already answered this, but like, I was going to ask you, was there sort of a moment you knew you wanted to work in footwear or was it just kind of like, be like. like the old man or, or what was that all about?
1: Yeah, it was more, um, it was more once I got to China, um, and was living there, you know, for the first few months, um, I was living in an apartment with the factory owner and, um, where it was just, you know, I was like 20 years old and my upbringing of what I was doing in the past of racing motocross, basically living in a motor home in, in Georgia for the previous three, four years before I went to China, just at a training facility. Um, it was just so wildly different. Um, and at the time, it was either like, do I go to school and get an education? And I had no idea what I wanted to do. And when I got over there, I was just like, I don't know, I just kind of fell in love with it in some way, like whether it was the culture or just just wildly different atmosphere, like everything about it, people. Um, so I think that's really what, um, you know, maybe want to like stick with it, um, was kind of China in general. And then, you know, the, the family that was, I mean, I was living in, in, in their you know apartment condo and shaman and, you know, just colleagues, whatever. And so that, I mean, that was kind of the main draw because that was going to be at some point I kind of had to make a decision. When am I going to, you know, stay here, live here, get a residency, you know, the whole thing, like, that decision when that, when I made that final decision, that's when I knew like, okay, well, I'm kind of in this thing now, you know? So, uh, because I was kind of getting that age to where, you know, just going to college or something was kind of going to be, you know, uh, I would have been older at that point, you know? So, right. so yeah, I didn't go to school, you know, I didn't go to school and, uh, just stayed there at the factory. So this is
0: fascinating. You're wearing what appears to be an Oxford shirt with a, a beautiful collar roll. Uh, and you're talking racing motocross, and I'm thinking of Ricky Carmichael, I'm thinking Travis Pastrana, and the Metal Militia. So where along that spectrum do you fall? Because you do not strike me as a motocross guy. So are you still riding? And please go into detail about
1: how you made this transition into Oxford Shirts. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it it is. It's kind of a weird thing because my, my parents were not aware of what motocross was or supercross. And so they kind of let me go a little too far. I mean, I started when I was four or five, grew up, you know, 15 minutes from Redbud here. Um, So just kind of organically started to do it. And then, you know, we're traveling the country, all of a sudden, as I'm 10, 11, 12, 13. And then um, when I was 14, 15, started taking more seriously as far as racing more and more skipping school, uh, basically. And then my parents agreed to homeschool me. Uh, so I could go live in a facility. I was 15. So I didn't really go to high school. Um, went to a place called GPF, which, uh, Ricky Carmichael lived 25, 25 minutes on the road. Uh, you know, his, his goat farm there. And, uh, yeah, I stayed at GPF. My friend who was three years older, was my mechanic he had to go with me so he could be my guardian. And, uh, so I could ride there and yeah, just stay there for three, four years, just kind of training, uh, to turn pro when I was 17. Um, and I had some, you know, how do I say like, it was, I felt at some point like, Hey, I could do this for a few years, uh, had somewhat of the potential to, to race professionally. Um, and had a lot of injuries basically from when I was 16 through, mm. through 19, but still I never had that raw, raw speed of, of someone who's like, your number one. Or top five in the country and Yamaha is going to give you, you know, $400,000 contract and you're pretty much set for the next few years type of thing. Because even those guys get kicked to the curb in a couple of years after, you know, a femur or whatever. Right. And then they're done. And these are guys that are best in the world. So I, I was almost there, but in between the injuries and not quite having that, like, okay, during some period you're the best. Yeah. Which I was not. Um, it just never really makes sense, but it always lures you in to continue to keep going. And my parents, right. you know, is, it's it's a lot on them as well, obviously, uh, with the hospital trips and the surgeries and whatever. And then, okay, we'll we'll let you get back into it, and then you go back down and you get more motorcycles and you, you keep racing. And um, because you have a good day, and then it's like, okay, we could do this. And then, but in reality, looking back on it, and especially that sport in general it's not a very friendly sport. It's actually a terrible sport uh, when it comes to career. And I had um, some of my closest friends at the time were, that was living with me in, in Georgia. I mean, there's a lot of talent that went through that facility. I mean, people you'd be watching on a Saturday night and I mean, in one weekend, I mean, their career is over. Really? It's it's not a very friendly sport. I, mean, I think my, my parents, my dad specifically kind of, he came around to that um, when I was about 20, because I would have kept going. Uh, of course uh right it was a fun time for me um but yeah I was like hey you're not if you're not going to uh you know be able to to get a ride and make this thing happen on your own which I wasn't at that level um it's time time to do something else and so either going to go to school whatever that was and and so when I first went to China I mean I was still very much that you know I didn't know anything else um but I would say really the transition into the footwear and everything else it was it was from the um you know the factory owner you know who, who really kind of brought me in and and taught me a lot about the business uh, of course my family had taught me a lot about the business throughout the years but um that would say that was more the transition that happened over there um pretty quickly and you know you have customers coming in from from who knows where and my job a couple years and was basically flying to the states and presenting samples and stuff like that so yeah, it just it naturally happened over a few years of once being right. in China, you know, wearing the, the the skein jeans and vans and t-shirt. Um, I mean, you can actually do that. And, you know, that's that's kind of the world we live in now though. Like it's totally fine to be a line builder and, and be very, very casual as well. But uh I think once you start getting getting into this stuff, just like if you get into watches, uh, you know, clothing, anything like that footwear. I mean, you start to, you know, have an interest in it and you're like, oh well, what's what's this? Where can you get this shirt? And oh, what's right. proper cloth? And, oh, what is this collar and, and what materials do they have? And, you know, you just kind of gradually get into that stuff. And I mean, it's it kind of goes hand in hand with what we do now, you know?
0: That's cool. So is your shirt proper cloth? Cause that's a, that's, that's actually a business that I was looking into um, recently because I was in need of a French cuff shirt. And I, I literally couldn't find a French cuff shirt that wasn't a tuxedo shirt um, fairly recently for, for a wedding that I was attending. But um at any rate, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be looking into them for sure, because uh, I've got another wedding to attend that's black tie in November. So uh, wind up New York City in
1: October, which, by the way, are you going? No, we won't. We won't be going to that. And uh, mainly because I have a little travel lined up this fall already. And then we have gotcha. an event, you know, a boot a boot camp event in New York this fall as well, kind of right around the same time. And uh, so, yeah, probably, probably skip that one. I
0: love the pun of that—a boot camp. So, what t- tell us what that what what exactly is that? Yeah,
1: so it's it's one of the. Um, I actually wouldn't know how to classify it. It started off as a forum, <laughs> maybe a blog, um, and uh, called StitchDown, and it slowly turned into kind of a community, um, more or less a Discord community of let's say a couple thousand people, and you know he's been throwing these events, kind of around the world at this point, like once or twice a year. They'll get a group of. 10 to 30 people I'll go to New York hit all the stores and go out and drink and, and eat and stuff like that nice and now it's kind of turned into this thing where he's trying to I mean he's having a, a fair but the the shoe fair is it's not a wholesale right which shoe fairs generally they are so this would be kind of one of the first direct to consumer um, you have the end consumer going around and you've got you know let's say 20 brands like ourselves who um very, very similar here to to the wind up stuff where you've got these micro brands or just these brands that are selling direct consumer and they can have a booth there. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah.
0: Well tell us about your current assortment then.
1: Yeah. So you know it's it's difficult kind of like um or even maybe even more difficult to uh put it put a name I feel like on on the category of footwear nowadays just because um you know a collared shirt you know, it's pretty easy. If you, if you go onto a website and you're like, hey, I know they make a lot of colored shirts, but if you're looking for like an Oxford cloth or whatever that is, you kind of know to go to like a, a casual button up or something like that. Like you kind of know where it goes. But I mean, we, we kind of face it every day where half our customers think we're a very, very casual brand because it's a lot of boots. It's a lot of loafers, very few Oxfords or semi-broke Oxfords, things like that. Meanwhile, the other half of the customers are like, this is the dressiest shoes I've ever bought and they're very dressy to me. And and it's just kind of like, you know, so we kind of fall in that category of a business casual welted brand. Um, and at this point, you know, I I think it's, it's almost fair to say, um, more of like a a smart casual, you know, just because maybe it's even a little bit uh, more casual than business casual, but you know, it's like, uh, most of these larger companies nowadays, most people, walk in with, with, you know, jeans and, and sneakers and stuff. So we, we kind of fall into that category. Um, not a lot of quote unquote dress shoes. Um, and the majority um, of our focus has been around boots that have a certain material or a specific leather. So we don't necessarily, for example, have like one product page and it's like, oh, here's this boot in black. And then you have all these little swatches next to it and you can kind of pick colors. It's more like every product's on its own. You click into it and you're like, Oh, what's saddle tan. And you click into it and that's like, Oh, this is from Italy. The tanner is called Battilassi. It's a, you know, pit tanned vegetable tanned leather. This is the qualities that it has. And it's kind of every product on its own all the way down to surprisingly, you know, sometimes of course your best sellers are usually, your blacks and your browns and things like that but sometimes we had like a the last couple of years we did more of a limited release kind of a fun smaller run of a of a capto boot in a dark dark um green and it was a kudu and so the kudu leather you know it shows a lot of the scars and yeah it's not exactly um pretty or polished or sheen it's it's almost like this matted leather that's got all all the marks and things on it right sort of wabi-sabi yeah Yeah, a ton of character and then also because of the raw material it's incredibly comfortable you know so it's a little thicker but it has this like um soft density to it so it's very forgiving you put it on it you know this break-in thing people talk about doesn't really have any of that just because it's so forgiving and you know, a one-off strange boot like that ended up performing really, really well and we put it into the line. And so I think that's kind of, that kind of defines what we do as far as taking something that in my mind, especially from a, a larger brand standpoint, which we're not, but in the grand scheme of things would be a kind of a one-off limited release product. We, we try to do things like that and you know, we're small enough that if it does relatively well, we can make it part of the core core collection. So we have sure. a lot of products that are like that. Um, for example, one of our best-selling boots is that saddle tan, that Minerva leather from Italy um, with a leather sole on it, which a lot of people, you know, and we've seen over the years, the rubber sole of course sells better than leather, but it's just just that product in general on its own is just unique enough that it, it just hits a spot for for enough customers where it just sure. continued to be kind of one of our classic products. And it would be hard to put other products around that to call it a collection. It's just like, no, here's here's this one-off item that kind of has a look to it, you know, and it performs well, it's got a leather outsole um, and yeah, just something different. So a lot of our boots kind of have that uh, story of, okay, it's this leather combined with this welt with this outsole for this reason, and and it kind of stands off on its own. So a lot of our, our business is turned into the, to those types of boots, and then uh, the second largest category would probably be our loafers, uh, the penny loafer, um, and that's just something that uh, just worked on for a long time to try to get something that uh, fits well, that we can use a lot of different types of leathers on, um, everything from shell to to suede to chrome excel. Um, calf and and everything else, and so we've slowly done that, and, and just about you know hit most of those categories with leathers on this penny loafer, and and now tassel loafers and things. So almost almost can say um, the two shoes that we started with uh, bluchers, they've become a very small part of the business, just because, and it makes sense, you know. And people ask, well, why, and you know, why you're not making more shoes and things, and it's just like it's hard to say other than. I personally don't wear them. Yeah, they don't sell, <laughs> and people just don't buy them. We still have multiple shoes uh, in stock in De Triple E Wits and and Suede's and and Excel. Um, we do Michelle Cordovan, and they just don't sell as well as anything else. Right. Um, and you see it, you know, because a shoe, I think, um, from a styling standpoint as well, you really have to dress a certain way, or you almost people tend to want to dress a little more business uh, casual. They'll need to wear like a, a buttoned up, things like that where a boot doesn't apply and a loafer doesn't apply. Sure. It's a little more well-rounded. So yeah, we're just not seeing as many shoe, shoe sales as, uh, as it used to be. Yeah.
0: No, it makes sense. Um, having worked at Allen Edmonds and seeing their assortment change dramatically, um, I could I can certainly understand that from your perspective as well.
1: When you're not working, what are you doing? You still riding bikes? No, no. At, at this point, we have a two and four year old, so like that's uh, pretty pretty much full time the last four four years of that. So, um, you know, hang out with the kids a little bit and uh, try to play golf. Yeah, I say that, and it's, I played four times I think this year in July, so almost August. So that's all right. Not not too much outside of outside of this, and uh, yeah, the, the kids are still pretty young, so that's that's been timing me up recently when did you start playing golf kind of, I mean, I have my whole life, my whole family's been into golf, um, always has been, and kind of sucks cause I'm the worst one. Um, always have been. <laughs> <laughs> and then all the people around me are like really good golfers and I go play with them and it just, it makes you not want to play golf. You know, it's, right. so, it's such an embarrassing game, um, to go out there and, and, and try to play. And I saw you were abandoned the other day. Um, I think right where you at abandoned dunes yeah, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. A couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, one of my friends here, Josh. I mean, he he's been with us since 2016, um, 2017. He used to work at Bandon Dunes. He was a caddy no there. Oh yeah, where he was a caddy there. Met his wife at Bandon Dunes, and um, yeah. Long story short, he's he's a he's a scratch golfer. So yeah, it's a ton of fun I'm going to go and play with him um, as I as I shoot you know 93 or whatever. So um, yeah, it's just a stressful game, but I I love it. Uh, you know, and you hit that yeah. one shot, and you're like, yeah, this isn't so bad. It's what keeps you coming back. In fact. Right. So yeah, I try to do that a little bit. And you know, as far as the bikes go, just mountain bikes, we bring the kids out and we go to the the trails, you know, once a week or something like that. I get, you know, the four-year-old, she she can ride her own bike in the trails and the two-year-old rides with me. And yeah, that's, that's, that's the majority of the time right there. Oh, that's awesome, man. What kind of clubs are you playing? Uh, so Mizuno, Mizuno. And actually, you know, I just got fitted, uh, last year and it's kind of weird. My game didn't get any better, but uh, <laughs> the clubs look really good and they feel <laughs> really nice. Um, and, but Joshua, I was mentioning, he he went, I mean, he kind of convinced me to do this and uh, you know, he ended up with Mizuno as well. Um, just basically looking at, you know, how he was hitting the ball and everything else. Um, not even so much feel or anything. And yeah, yeah, they're good clubs, great irons. Totally.
0: Yeah. I, I used to have a set of Mizunos before I got my Titleist set, which I really love and I've hit Muras and I've just been really struggling to stay away from Mura. <laughs> it keeps draw yeah, I mean it keeps drawing me back in, but I'm just like, you know, the MB one oh ones that they make I mean, if you were to cross your eyes, they look exactly like the 620 MBs that Titleists are making. Like, I mean, the toe is a little higher; it's not quite as round as is the, as the Titleist. But like, for a thousand dollars more, it's like, is it actually worth it? I mean, if you hit absolutely every single shot of yours pure, um, you can feel a difference. But even still, like, is it a thousand dollars difference? I mean, that's yeah. I'm definitely it's a fifty percent. <laughs> Yeah, I mean it's a fifty percent price increase, so it's like, again, I, I'm I'm struggling to stay away. Like I want a set so bad, but I just can't see the sense in paying fifty percent more for something that like I may only notice twenty five percent of the time. You know what I mean? Or because I mean I'm I'm I hit the ball well, but like again, a thousand dollars that's fifty percent of another set a few years from now. You know what I mean? So it's like. I don't know but that's just but i loved my mizunos i had mp67s i think like way back when and those were yeah really, yeah i mean if you me,
1: you know i'm sure over there too you have a like a ton of the you know simulator likes the club champion you can go hit some i i hit some of those mirrors and yeah i mean i i would never be able to tell the difference but they, they're sweet but um yeah the other way go on ebay and grab a set of irons and give them a shot for a little bit before you take a deep dive because i mean it's crazy people on ebay i mean they'll play around or something and, and, you know, throw throw them on there. So, um, that might be a good way to give them, give them a shot, but yeah, yeah, totally. What was your first car? Uh, my first car, uh, it was a Sonoma. It had to be a truck, but, you know, putting the bikes in the back and stuff. And I drove that thing, like like 300,000 miles. And I think because, you know, Michigan to Georgia and stuff back and forth a few times a year. And, uh, yeah, I put a lot of I didn't put 300. I think it, you know, it had right. maybe a hundred or 150 and, you know, something like that. But, um, yeah, Sonoma, Sonoma.
0: What's the daily driver now? Uh, Genesis
1: G70. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. Those are Lux. Yeah. It's been, an it's been a good car and, uh, yeah, I always, I liked it. You know, I was a little scared to get into the, I've never had a, um, you know, like a, I don't know, five series or Mercedes or anything like that. And I guess, you know, kind of more towards like the BMW, stuff, you know, something sporty for whatever reason, just seemed like, yeah, it'd be, a, it'd be a fun, a fun thing. And like the Genesis seems to be, um, I don't know. I've got two years in, uh, like 23,000 miles, I think. And it, oh, yeah, they're great. I mean, that it's a super smooth car. Like, obviously it's not as super intense or anything. But I told my friend at the time, he didn't, you know, he's not like a, a big car guy, you know, But I'm like, yeah, I got a Genesis. He's like, He's like, oh, that's awesome. He's like, yeah, one of those like big, like saloon, like big cars. I'm like, no, it's like they have new ones now. It's a little smaller stuff. He's like, oh, like the sorority girl, like BMW thing. I'm like, dude, you suck. Yeah. <laughs> but it is, it's, it's a pretty small car. The G70 is pretty small Back seat, It's pretty tight and stuff, but I definitely put the kids back there. Yeah. Uh, golf clubs and stuff in the trunk. No problem. Um, you know, 22 miles a gallon. It's fun. That's great. So yeah, it's a good car what's the last thing you did for the first time
0: this usually trips people up
1: <laughs> yeah i mean the big one that i can think of is like so for the first time uh, our two-year-old our four-year-old's been been overseas uh, a few times to china but our two-year-old hadn't so we took for the first time because our two-year-old's also insane you know we, we had to taiwan the four of us as a family and that was i was kind of freaking out a little just a little bit like okay, this is going to be tough you know this is going to be tough like we're not going to get a ton of rest we're going to be just absolutely drained during this trip and after this is going to be brutal um and we did that this spring and actually it it was surprisingly easy everything went smooth like the kids do well in the plane and you know it's it's a good i mean we, we had a direct flight which doesn't happen very often especially when we go to china it doesn't happen but Chicago has direct to Taipei, which was, I mean, that was the big, you know, saver there. But you know, if you go through O'Hare and everything else, it's still 18 hours like door to door, right? So but the kids did good and like uh yeah, we had a blast over there. Um I used to spend a lot of time in, in Taipei, um, you know, usually like once a month or something for for those eight or nine years. And uh we the the factory has an office there. So we went to go see all of our colleagues and just go up north, go to the the spas and stuff. Um yeah, the whole deal. Spend eight days in in Taipei City, just touring around, pushing. You know, we got there. We're like, we don't need a stroller. We literally got a stroller before we checked in that day because we we were just trying to get to the hotel. And like, you know, it was it was like seven o'clock in the morning. It was like really three hours in. The two year olds already like crying. I'm like, okay, yeah. So we got we got a stroller. And I mean, yeah, that that was a good trip though. That was a ton of fun, and it was nice to check that off the list. You know, with with the young ones because you know, we're going to be doing that a little more often now, hopefully, uh, as things smooth out here. And, uh, yeah, it was, I was happy that it went that way.
0: That's awesome, man. I'll have to get your list of things to do. Cause, um, Taiwan is, is certainly on our short list of places to go. Um, we haven't been together. I mean, my wife's been, um, but I've, I've never been to Taiwan before. Um, so yeah, shoot me your list of, of the hot spots Cause I'd,
1: I'd love to see it. Absolutely. I mean, yeah we we would live there like in a heartbeat it's 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 a very very unique city um where it's it's very clean uh it's safe it has everything when it comes to food um all the way down from like you know side of the street all the little vendors and stuff all the way to we had you know incredible you know Japanese just like you're you know in Osaka or Kyoto or something like very very good food all around uh, you know just it's just a very nice vibe over there so yeah yeah and I'll definitely do that
0: that's incredible well listen Wyatt man this was super fun man and obviously we don't get nearly enough FaceTime uh, we got to get you out to California and play some golf um, it is not competitive we can uh, have as as much uh, fun and alcohol as you'd like uh- <laughs> it helps my <laughs> and game yeah yeah so we you know shoot 93 you know every day if you want but um yeah it's all good man but we'll we'll have to get you out here yeah absolutely i appreciate it yeah well white, thanks man for taking the time and um sorry i'll miss you in new york but hope to see you certainly sooner than later
1: yeah absolutely thank you man. okay
0: buddy all right let's chat soon okay sounds good. okay see ya, see ya. This wraps up this episode of the Standard Age Podcast. If you like what you heard, I'd love it if you'd share it with a friend or two. And if you have a moment, please rate and review the show as it helps others discover these episodes. It absolutely helps far more than you realize. Shout out to Jensen Reed and Super Beautiful for the theme track. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you in the next one. Take care.